Well, good evening, everybody. I'm delighted to see you here um, and to welcome you to the LSE. My name is Anne West, and I'm the current head of department of the Department of Social Policy, and I'll be chairing this event. The lecture this evening will be given by Professor Sir John Hills, and the title of his lecture is Britain and the Welfare State in the 21st Century, a More or Less Irresponsible Society. I'd like to welcome John, and I'd also like to welcome our two discussants, Professor Howard Lannister and Dr. Sonia Exley. And I'll tell you a bit more about everybody before they give their um, presentation. Before we begin, I have a few housekeeping points. So first of all, do turn your mobile phones to silent. <laughs> We've done it. Um, we're not expecting any fire drills or fire alarms, so um, if you do hear the alarm, the assembly point is on the Oldwich, so turn right outside this building. The event will be recorded, and we hope that a podcast will be available. So moving on to the order of events, John will give his lecture first of all. Howard and Sonia will then respond. Then there'll be a question and answer session. And we expect the event to finish by about quarter to eight or eight o'clock. And after that, there'll be a reception that's open to everyone. And I'll give you directions at the end, but it's open to everybody. So do come along. It'd be good to see you. So before John begins his lecture, I'd like to say a few words about him. John is the Richard Titmus Professor of Social Policy at the LSE. He's also Chair of the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion, CASE, um, and his research interests include the distribution of income and wealth, wealth, the um, welfare state, social security, pensions, housing and taxation. He was a founding co-director of the LSE's International Inequalities Institute. Outside the LSE, he was chair of the UK government's National Equality Panel between 2008 and 2010, and was one of the three members of the UK Pensions Commission from 2003 to 2006. His recent publications, which I recommend to you, include Good Times, Bad Times, The Welfare Myth of Them and Us, published second edition in 2017, and Social Policy in a Cold Climate, which he co-edited. So John will now deliver his lecture on Britain and the welfare state in the 21st century, a more or less irresponsible society. So over to you. Well, thank you very much for that, Anne, and uh, thank you all for coming when you could otherwise have been at home watching the latest twists and turns in the um, election debates. Um, I have the huge honour, as Anne said, as uh, holding the Richard Titmus um, Chair in Social Policy, named after um, her predecessor, Richard Titmus, who was the head of our department through the 1950s and uh, quite a lot of the 1960s, I think. Howard and Sonia can correct me on that. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is because my mother trained as a social worker in the 1960s 
Uh, she had, I think, been offered a place at LSE, and then, but, uh, but, but my siblings intervened. Um, so it wasn't until she trained as a, a social worker in Nottingham in the 1960s. And I, I, around that point, I became aware as a child of the existence of this godlike figure of Richard Titmus. And at some point, I think, when I was still at school, I became aware of this volume which she referred to. This is her copy. Um, of, of Richard Titmus's Essays on the Welfare State, and I think became intrigued by the fact that this was the second edition with a new chapter on the irresponsible society. Now, that was the, the chapter he wrote in that book, which had been a Fabian tract in the days when we had Fabian tracts, um, was a lecture which he had delivered to a Fabian audience in November 1959. So I thought that it might be interesting on the 60th anniversary of that lecture um, to look at both what he thought was irresponsible about our society in 1959 and about what he might have thought about, um, about our society today, applying similar criteria. If you read his essay... Um, Titmus was cross. Well, he certainly, that, well, that's what comes out of the, of the essay. Um, there were several things that he was cross about, and I'm going to talk about five of them, um, but Howard and Sonia may, may add to the list. Um, the first thing was what he describes as irresponsible power. He was very exercised by the power of financial interests, and by the men, and he refers specifically to men, who ran insurance companies and pension funds who were not wicked men, but who made sober, profitable, responsible decisions, which because of their scale um, meant that social policies will be imposed without democratic decision. And that's what he saw as being a prime aspect of irresponsibility in our society 60 years ago. Now, at the point, looking up the numbers, UK pension funds, I think insurance fund, funds had a little bit more money, but UK pension funds had assets of £2.3 billion. And that was, at the time, around 10% of national income. Today, pension funds have assets of £2.3 trillion, which is bigger than a whole year's worth of GDP. So in relative terms, the scale of the assets of those financial interests is 10 times as big as it was. And it's interesting to speculate what on earth Titmus would make of that, let alone what he would make of the banks that turned out to be too big to fail in the crisis of 2008, um, let alone the behavior of the Royal Bank of Scotland under Fred Goodwin um, as I think he would have seen as being the epitome of irresponsible power um, and the costs of which we are still bearing um, as a society as a whole. Uh, the second aspect of the five things I'm going to concentrate on was what he described as the welfare state myth. And Titmus always put welfare state in inverted commas. Um, he, he didn't entirely like the, the terminology. Um, and in this essay and in other parts of his writing, 
he bewailed the assumption that the post-war, post-Second World War uh, political consensus, what became known for a while as butskalism, um, meant that people assumed that social problems were on their way to solution. Um, he also drew a lot of attention here, and again in, in, in other more famous essays, um, to welfare for the better off. Um, that is through tax reliefs given for saving in those pension funds, um, but also through those who have benefited most um, being those um, for who needed it least. So he saw, uh, referring to um, what became known as the inverse care law of the allocation of health resources to um, people with more to higher incomes than others, even with the National Health Service. And he also pointed, I think, rather interestingly, to the way in which contracting out the ability to opt out of the state system um, for the new, about to be introduced new graduated pension, um, which I think in a few years' time I will get about tenpence a year from, um, because I did contribute to it for a little bit before it was abolished while doing a summer job, um, that, that that ability to opt out will undermine the whole system of state social security. Now, well, I think he was too pessimistic um, on the resilience of the welfare state and on the popularity of the universal parts of it, the National Health Service, schools, pensions. Um, when he was speaking... Um, Spending on education, health, and social security was between 12 and 13 percent of national income. Um, today, it's 22 percent of national income. Um, and today's election campaign has been marked throughout the last week with um, more and more promises for support for the National Health Service, schools, um, and certainly no assault um, on, on pensions. And if, if you look on a lifetime basis, as we have done in some of our work, um, you see on a lifetime basis that it's not really true that those who get most out of the system are those who, who need it least. By and large, most people, if you look at their lifetime incomes, get about the same out of the core welfare services as each other. But he probably was right to say that we were too optimistic, that, that, that we were too optimistic in 1959 um, that social problems were on their way to be, being solved. Uh, but if we were too optimistic in 1959, God knows we're miserable now. Um, his third area was the role of education. And he has a sideswipe at the way that, that what he describes as the current obsession which sees education as capital investment for the purpose of keeping up in the economic race. Now that seems to me, and Sonia may have more to add on this, even more of an obsession today. Um, although, of course, you know, there has been a revolution in the spread uh, of the, the proportion of the population who stay on after compulsory schooling and the length of um, schooling itself, um, and the proportion um, uh, getting longer uh, periods of post-school education, but albeit with ever more detailed calculations of the precise returns to different degrees. And if you look at some of the publications from the Institute of Fiscal Studies earlier this year, just in case you were worried about it, 
the institution giving you the highest return on your degree in the UK is the LSE, and the subject which gives you the highest return is economics, so we can't quite claim that for social policy, uh, if that's what you're interested in. Um, but there is one thing that he regretted in 1959 which has changed a little bit. He wrote that, thinking back to the post, post-war period, we did not understand that government by the people would mean that power in government, the cabinet and the city could be permanently in the hands of those educated at Eton and other public schools. Well, we now know that. At least as far as cabinets and Eton are concerned, we've only had a Prime Minister educated at Eton for seven of the last ten years. Uh, Fourthly, he talked about public affairs. So alongside the undemocratic power of financial institutions, he also railed against a national press which has as a whole steadily steadily taught the public for 15 years um, to sneer at public order and public service and to admire cupidity and acquisitiveness. And he has a particular go at the Daily Sketch of October 1959. I think the Daily Sketch was a Labour-supporting paper. um, which had advised people not to vote Labour in the election of 1959, October 1959, on the grounds that Labour had proposed a crackdown on tax evasion. Um, now, I just cannot imagine what he would have made of a world of the relentless attacks on welfare scroungers in the British press, um, and let alone the bloggers and the vloggers from the... Kardashians and the gloop um, upwards or or downwards, depending on which way you think about it. Um, Finally, he points to the irresponsibility of of accelerating inequality. Now, I think this is quite interesting, because from what we know now, from analysis which was actually pioneered originally by Titmuss's colleagues, um, Brian Abel-Smith and Peter Townsend, using secondary analysis of other data, Um, we do know that there had been a slight increase in income inequality between 1949 and 1959 in the 10 years before he was speaking. But then it started falling. Um, And that was partly in response to the political reaction after 1964 to the realisation that poverty had not been abolished by the post-war welfare state, um, a realisation underpinned by the work of of Tippett himself and... um, Abel Smith and Townsend, um, and and work from our own department. But then inequality leapt, thinking about UK income inequality, um, in the the 1980s. Um, Just as one measure of that, when Titmus was writing, the post-tax share of the top 1% in overall post-tax income of the population as a whole was 5.5%. So 5.5 times an equal share. That actually fell by the late 1970s to 4.2%. Um, by 2014, it was 10.5%. Twice the level of inequality that Titmus was um, upset about in, the, um, the 19, in 1959 as being both the driver and the product of irresponsibility. So... 
that's my quick summary of his, of his, his lecture. Uh, so the question is, what, what of today? And would he and should we see society today as being more or less irresponsible than it was then? Now, I don't know enough about his thought. Um, people in the audience who, who knew him um, might be able to, 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 to say more. But I'd like to point to six different areas. And it's impossible, obviously, to talk about irresponsibility without mentioning Brexit. Uh, there will be people in this room, I'm sure, with some, some varying views on this. But personally, I'm with Donald Tusk um, and his identification of a special place in hell for those who campaign for Brexit without even a sketch of a plan for achieving it safely. Um, and in the case of our current Prime Minister, um, the um, revelation, if it was, not that it came as a great surprise, by his predecessor David Cameron um, that he had campaigned for Brexit um, as a way of advancing his own career rather than out of any underlying um, belief um, seems to me to be the absolute height of irresponsibility. But we're not talking this evening about the irresponsibility of one particular politician. We're talking about whether our society as a whole would be characterized as irresponsible. Um, now, here, um, whoops, sorry, I think it's, we're worried not, it's not just about the, the probable effects of Brexit, in whatever form it, it takes, but the way in which the whole debate of the last three years has sucked attention away from um, other issues that in any other era would have been the focus of current politics. So I would put chief amongst those, um, I think most obviously, the climate emergency. If one's looking for irresponsibility in our society, it is very hard not to put the adult generations who have carried on as if nothing had changed top of one's list. And maybe the school strikes for climate and uh, the momentum that has now gathered behind them uh, one can identify as one of the few positives um, of the last year or so. But of course, statements about ambitions um, are one thing, actually taking action is another. And for ourselves, for, for social policy, it seems to me that the, the big challenge we have to address is how to cope with the regressive effects of higher carbon prices on the fuel costs um, of um, people with lower incomes, where those costs form a greater share of their income. And, and what we actually do to tackle fuel poverty um, directly through instruments that, um, that attack its causes, uh, the inefficiency of our heating systems, um, as well as compensating people through, through cash transfers. The third of my six areas is how we are or are not coping with the costs of aging. Now, aging is good news, and earlier this year I was slightly upset that the private actuarial profession um, took a year off my cohort's life expectancy. But if you want cheering up, you can look at um, the department linked through to Mike Murphy's 
um, British Policy and Politics blog on how um, some of those projections about the stalling in the improvement in, in, in life expectancy may have been overrated. Anyway, but ageing is a good thing, but it is expensive. Uh, the Office for Budget Responsibilities um, uh, projected effects of, on long-term public spending of simply standing still in what we do by way of pensions and social care and health care uh, as the population um, ages, um, that if we were to keep up with that and do the same for anybody of any given age as we do at the moment, um, the spending um, on, on education, social security, health and social care would have to rise from 22% of GDP now to 26% of GDP in 20 years' time, by, by 2038. Um, now, you know, that, almost all of that is healthcare in those projections. It's, it's almost entirely driven by healthcare, a little bit by pensions, but mostly healthcare. Um, 4% of GDP is £80 billion a year, and that's on top of keeping up with, with um, the growth of national income. Now, if you want to reduce that to something you put on a side of a bus, that is £1,530 million per week. Um, that's, in other words, it's nearly five buses of extra weekly spending. Um, I was looking this morning at the Labour Party's proposed proposals for health spending um, by 2023, um, and they would um, add um, half percent of GDP, I think, over those four years. That's um, an eighth of what we're going to need over the next 20 years. So in other words, that rate of increase in spending, which they have said how they're going to fund the extra part of it above what the current government already planned, um, is almost on track. But we have to keep doing that every four years. We have to do the same, and we have to find a way of funding it. And it's not clear to me that that situation that we will have to keep doing this for the next 20 years and the consequences of having to raise the revenue um, to do that has been, is part of the political debate, has been spelt out um, to the public. Um, let alone, uh, you know, if, if, if some of the numbers we're hearing as in any election campaign will not add up in terms of how they're going to be paid for, there is even less discussion about how those future challenges um, will be um, will be made. So what seems to me to be irresponsible in this is that we're facing this with most politicians pretending that we can cope through efficiency savings um, elsewhere or through taxes on other people, um, the top 5% rather than the 95%, um, rather than levelling with the public um, on what we need to do to finance uh, the National Health Service. Um, at the same level, alongside what we're doing about ageing, um, it seems to me, to um, quote Donald Tusk again, that we have squandered the last 20 years since our, the last Royal Commission, the Royal Commission on Long-Term Care, reported in 1999, uh, with a succession of reports on what to do about the social care problem and how to pay for it, um, without ever coming to any solution. Um, now, that aspect of ageing leads me on to my fourth area, which is about intergenerational inequalities, um, which I think are increasingly hard to ignore. 
Um, just from some of our, uh, our own recent work within CASE, which um, Anne mentioned, um, and you can look, there's a blog on the departmental um, blog site, um, <clears throat> uh, summarizing some of the work I did with Polina Oblenskaya and others. Um, over the 10 years from 2005, real median hourly earnings fell for people in their late 20s by 12% for men and women. But for people in their early 60s, they rose by 12% for men, by 2% for women. Um, another aspect of that is that by 2015, median household wealth, if you include private pension rights, that's all those um, GDP's worth of assets, was £539,000 for 55 to 64-year-old households, uh, but only £67,000 for households aged around 30. That's £16,000 for every year of age difference, um, or you can translate that to, to simply the need to make up that gap to save £44 a day, every day, for the next 30 years. Sorry if those of you are in your early 30s. Um, ooh, yeah, okay. Um, in his 1959 lecture, Titmus quoted a Camberwell vicar who um, told him that the people he was marrying in 1959 would have to wait four and a half years to get a council house through the waiting list. Well, that chance would be a fine thing today to only have to wait four and a half years. Um, and one of the most, really most striking changes of the last 15 years has been the trebling of the number of children in England living in private rented accommodation from 600,000 to now 1.8 million um, children today. I think we find ourselves in a completely new situation where an ever-increasing number of children are living with all the insecurity and potential moves inherent in private renting. And this is just one aspect of a housing crisis, which we have despite the fact that we have more residential floor space per person in England than we have ever had, and vastly more than we had uh, when Titmus was talking. Now, of course, not all baby boomers are rich, and not all 30-year-olds are poor. But the scale of all of this makes the bank of mum and dad more important than ever. And with it, another crank in the handle that links which parents you choose to have to your own life chances. Um, we may not have willed this outcome. Um, and as David Willett showed in the second edition of his book, The Pinch, which he published last week, um, most older people do not welcome it. Um, but we have, over the last 30 years, um, especially the last 10, allowed that to emerge. Fifthly, the holes in the safety net. When Titmus and his colleagues were writing, he and they assumed that there would be a national minimum, a floor, um, guaranteed by what was then called national assistance. No one would be destitute by design um, in that situation. 
Shockingly, that is no longer the case in this country, despite the fact that we are so much better off. Um, those of you who saw last week's State of Hunger report published by uh, the Trussell Trust with work from our colleagues at Heriot Watt University or who followed the UN Special Rapporteur's um, visit to the UK last year um, will have seen that. Um, so you will um, if you followed the escalating um, use of food banks um, reported in today's paper, yesterday's paper, as now running at a rate of 1.85 million food parcels a year just from the Trussell Trust, which is only one of the people, the groups of people that deliver it. Um, and that itself is twice what it was only five years ago. With a level five years ago, I think that 15 years ago, few of us would have conceived that that would have been a central part of, of social provision today. Um, now, there are several reasons for that escalation, and the, 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 the State of Hunger report goes through many of them. The first is generosity. Back in 1959, the basic state pension and unemployment benefit were both 27% of average earnings. Today, with recent reforms, the single-tier state pension, which you get a bit, a bit, a bit later than you would have done, um, was 25% uh, of average earnings. Um, and with, as you know, a 3.8% increase in cash terms promised for, for next year. Um, so it's much the same proportion. But, it, but the job seekers' allowance and its equivalence for people of working age have fallen to 15% of average earnings, a uh, little over half the relative value of what they used to be. Um, Titmus's colleague, Peter Townsend, um, was working in 1959 on his book, The Last Refuge, um, about um, homes for the, for the elderly, um, with the great final line, that the ultimate test of a free, democratic, and prosperous society is to be found in the standard of freedom, democracy, and prosperity enjoyed by its weakest members. Now, we've been looking just in the last couple of weeks in case at the value of that state minimum um, given in 1959 by uh, National Assistance Today by Universal Credit or Job Seeks Allowance. Uh, now, I'm using 1961 figures because I can compare them with the poverty line. In 1961, with rates set a year after Titmus was talking, um, that rate was £4.10 shillings for, in old money, for a couple with no children. And that's £61.81 a week in today's money. And that would be 66%, two-thirds of the poverty line defined in today's terms, and 60% of median income. <coughs> Today, the equivalent scale rate is £114.85. Um, it's not quite twice the 1961 rate in real terms, but it's less generous in real terms than it was 20 years ago. The freeze over the last five years has undone any real increase of the previous uh, 15. And it is now only 42% of the poverty line of the current poverty line. Um, so it's two-thirds of the generosity relative to poverty 
um, compared with 1961. Um, and that's just the advertised rate, assuming that you get it um, <clears throat> in full. Um, and it, I mean, in, back in 19... Well, back in 1961, um, a quarter of people on national assistance of working age would have received additions averaging about seven shillings, uh, seven shillings and eleven pence, nearly eight shillings, um, on top of that, adding to it. Today, what we're thinking about are shortfalls, um, especially as far as people's housing costs are concerned. Back in 1959 or 1961, it would be assumed that if you were on national assistance, your, your rent and rates, the equivalent of council tax, would be covered in full. Um, by your national assistance. And until, until 2012, um, housing benefit would have covered the median rent for an appropriate size property in your area. So the bottom half of private rented properties in your area, housing benefit would cover, um, would cover all of your rent. Um, that limit was cut. Um, so initially that it would only cover the cheapest 30% of rents, um, but since then, that was in 2013, but since then the limits have not kept up and then been frozen, and they've not kept up with what's happened to private rents. Um, so it's just impossible for people to find private rented accommodation um, within those limits, and that means escalating shortfalls. Um, um, so in work that we published, um, that, that, that work I referred to we published in the summer, if you look at that, one effect of that is that the poorest tenth of people, of households in London, once you've allowed for housing costs, are no better off in 2015 than they were in 1995, despite the rapid growth um, in the economy up to, up to the crisis of 2008. Um, Another part of the gap is, of course, sanctions, which have been very well documented by many others, of how the use of sanctions boomed, the effect that had on food bank use, uh, but then fell back, um, even though there was no official message to shrink, the use, to, to shrink the use of sanctions or increase them in the first place. But it now at very, has returned to very high levels of sanctioning for people on um, on, on universal credit and last week's report and other research points to the way in which that's directly linked to the need for people to use um, food banks. And then there's universal credit itself now affecting one and a half million people and I could spend the whole of my time this evening um, talking about that. But if one's looking for irresponsibility, paying monthly in arrears uh, actually, in fact, after five weeks from the start of a claim having been actually sorted out, as if all claimants were paid like me on a monthly basis and could spread out our final paycheck, if LSE chooses to get rid of me, for five to six weeks, um, is a prime example. Uh, it helps the Treasurer's cash flow, um, but at the cost of hardship, of rent arrears, and of using all of people's credit with their friends and family to tide them over um, that period. It is true that one can now get an advance um, after a couple of weeks, but only at the cost of paying it back over the following year um, and therefore being even poorer than those rates I was quoting. Uh, it seems to me that in normal circumstances, um, this crisis would be at the top of everybody's agenda. Uh, but we seem to have no bandwidth 
um, for this politically at the moment. Um, <clears throat> finally, and rather briefly, um, inequality. Now, actually, in many aspects, certainly income inequality in the UK is no higher than it was 20 years ago. But it is hugely greater than it was 60 years ago. Um, but we've come to tolerate it. And we've come to see huge differences in what people within the same organizations um, receive and are paid um, as, as normal. Our norms have changed. Um, uh, the American academic and, and then, um, Secretary for Labor at one point for Bill Clinton, Robert Reich, wrote very interestingly in his book, The Work, the Work of Nations, about how relative it is in workplaces in the US and similarly in the UK in the 1950s were very much like the relativities between um, the general and the GI or the private in the armed forces in the Second World War. And it would have been shameful to go outside those relativities. But the elastic snapped in the 1970s and the 1980s and we now seem to think, as a society, that it's okay. So, are we a more or less irresponsible society than the one that Titmus described in 1959? Now, it's, you know, it is certainly not a good moment to be defending the irresponsibility of Britain's leaders. And first, I, I think I need to be careful that I'm not arguing that 1959 was a better time be alive in the UK than today, or that I would actually want to swap back. Um, to start with the absolute basics, um, British men of my age, that is 65, at that point could expect to live a further 12 years um, in 1959 on average. Today that average is 22 years, and I'm not going to knock that extra decade um, that we've got over the last 60 years. Um, median incomes, typical incomes, adjusted for inflation, are three times what they were in 1959. Um, London now averages 75 hours a day of uh, 75 hours of sunshine in November, um, whereas November 1959 only had 58 hours of sunshine, <laughs> and that was above average. Um, the Met Office records um, tell us. Um, uh, today, the, um, the average um, temperature in London um, in November, average daily maximum temperature in London, is um, 11 degrees, um, which is um, warmer than the actual average in November 1959, which was 10.3 degrees centigrade, uh, but, but it is a degree and a half higher than the average the Met Office calculated for the 1950s of 9.5 degrees. Although, of course, that increase in the London November average temperature of 1.5 degrees is precisely the average that we are trying to stop for the world as a whole um, and is um, a symptom of the climate emergency. Um, and looking beyond social policy, um, of course, when Titmus was talking, we were just three years from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, apartheid was entrenched. Black Americans did not have civil rights. And the Iron Curtain was firmly in place. 
But I think we can probably match all of those with, the, with systemic risks that we're ignoring or not doing very much about. And they come on top of the ones that echo Titmus's social concerns. Um, on climate change alone, on the lack of a conversation, on, on the need uh, to raise most of our taxes uh, to meet the needs of an aging population, on our tolerance of inequalities that were unimaginable um, in the trajectory of the late 1950s, um, I think the case is against us. But maybe there will be some people in the audience who will be able to cheer us up, and maybe Sonia and Howard might be able to do that. I think I should, I should probably end with Titmus's own conclusion, um, which in, in some ways is a kind of call to arms, but also more uplifting. To grow in affluence, then, does not mean that we should abandon the quest for equality. In some senses, at least, the quest becomes harder to undertake as the cruder injustices of yesterday are reduced and blurred. But new forms and manifestations of social injustice take their place. To substitute the professional protest for the social protest and the arbitrary power of the city for the accountable power of the commons is no answer. No answer for ourselves, no prescription for participating democracy, no example for Africa and the poverty-stricken peoples of the world. It is simply the mark of an irresponsible society. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John. Very stimulating presentation. Our first discussant is uh, Professor Howard Glenister, who is Emeritus Professor of Social Policy. He joined the LSE in 1964 to work in Klaus Moser's research unit on the economics of higher education. In 1968, the year of the Troubles, he joined the staff of the Social Administration Department as a lecturer. He went on teaching in the department until he retired in 2001. He filled other positions in the school, including Chair of Stickard, which is the Suntorian Toyota International Centres for Economics and Related Disciplines. And outside the LSE, he was advisor to the Treasury in Kenneth Clark's um, time, and he was on the Secretary of State for um, Health's Advisory Committee on Resource Allocation um, between 1998 and um, 2010. His most recent book, Understanding the Cost of Welfare, was published in 2017. And again, I can strongly recommend it, particularly those of you who are students. So um, it's great. So over to you, Howard. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Um, I, um, before the, the lecture and after rereading Irresponsible Society, I decided to make a list, rather like John's list. Of, uh, I, I should disappoint you by saying that it's almost identical. <laughs> um, I mean, literally, I mean, almost in the order that you listed. So um, I'm not going to be very good at saying, well, I totally disagree with that, and that's all a lot of rubbish, and, like, you know, so... Um, I just do very much agree with the, the thrust. But let me just begin with some things which I might have a slightly different emphasis, I suppose. Um, the first thing, the, the things that Richard made Richard Cross in this lecture um, were, in the first instance, um, the, um, the people who ran private occupational pension schemes. I mean, the, a large part of that lecture is actually an attack on pen the private pension system. 
Um, and you need to remember that that lecture was delivered um, only a year after uh, Richard and other people here in the school, in the department, um, Brian Abel Smith and Townsend, and people uh, that John's mentioned, wrote uh, the Labour Party's pension policy. Um, the whole thing, I mean, literally almost wrote, wrote it word for word. Um, and uh, in that, uh, he was building on the um, newly uh, created and introduced pension schemes in Sweden and Germany, in which uh, the national pension scheme would ease the, the time that when you became unim when you became retired, you would you would receive a proportion of your previous incomes, and that was a state responsibility. Now, uh, that route was never followed at all consistently and not successfully in Britain. And uh, pension policy switched back from one extreme to another for most of that period, uh, the, last, the, the period since he wrote. And it was left to Adair Turner and John to come up with a compromise um, that would nudge employees to belong to uh, employer-run or employer-help-funded fund, schemes. And um, that uh, was a, a process which um, did achieve political consensus and a huge achievement, uh, which Osborne then, to some extent, undid with his proposals in the, the, uh, the succeeding budgets to enable people to cash in those tax-supported uh, schemes. Um, and I, I suppose I would just quite like to press John to um, say a bit more about pensions policy, since this is his, one of his major remits. I mean, what would, if Titmus was to reappear like some ghost from Hamlet uh, and challenge um, John on, well, you've now made this the, 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 the dominant scheme, uh, and this has now been interrupted by Osborne's uh, new uh, uh, proposals. Um, where do we go from here? So question number one is push you a bit further on, on pension policy. Um, the second thing I suppose I would slightly differ in emphasis on would be um, universal credit. Now, I think the thing that Titmus would have been not only critical of, but in despair about, would be the inhumanity of the rules. Not only just the level of benefits, but the way the whole thing is administered. I mean, he was the deputy chairman of the Supplementary Benefits Commission, and those of us in the department at the time were expected to turn up to the summer school, David's here somewhere, and uh, help teach on the, on the Supplementary Benefits Summer School, he cared passionately about the humanity with which people who were receiving that supplementary benefit were treated. And I would add to John's description that I, that I think this would leave him in despair. Um, the third uh, thing I would just pick up, John, on say something slightly different about would be the, um, the whole issue of ageing and long-term care and the relationship between the health service and social care. 
um, it's not just the cost of um, the health service, which I did quite a lot of work on um, 10 years ago, um, and you know, the additional five to six to seven to eight times as much that it costs to uh, care for and care with, as it were, people over the age of 65. That is hugely important, and John's absolutely right about that. But what Titmus himself noted in his evidence to the Gillibo Committee in 1956 was the um, very damaging consequences of the division between the health service and the social care system. They didn't call it social care in those days, but you know what I mean. Um, at the perverse incentives that there are when you've got a, comp uh, a system so heavily split between a national and a locally funded one, with all the incentives um, that we, we know very well about now. Now, um, the other countries um, saw the problem of ageing arising um, 20 years ago. Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Japan introduced, uh, reorganised re re and refinanced their long-term care systems. Uh, well before, as it were, they were faced with the problem. And we did nothing. Um, and we've gone on doing nothing. Uh, and even the limited changes that Dilnot proposed uh, were abandoned in this last decade. And so we're now faced with a growing problem with all these additional issues that, that uh, um, uh, John has so well talked about, the upcoming problems. Um, and we've not solved this problem, which Titmus identified back in 1956. Finally, um, on his pessimism point, um, I think in many ways, if you look back over those 60 years, it's been a remarkably fortunate one, demographically. Um, and social policy has done rather well, in the sense that um, there were... Uh, the baby boomers uh, entering the job market. There were women entering the labor market on a scale not seen for very many years. Immigrants. So you had more people coming through the system who were raising cash, as it were, to providing the revenue. And on the other side of the scale, you had a reduction in the role of the state. Uh, you had um, us moving out of empire the end of the Cold War. Um, you had um, no climate problems. And what has happened, at, at, if you look at the proportion of the budget that was spent on welfare at the time Titmus took his chair, it was about a quarter of the total public expenditure budget, and now it's two-thirds. And... Uh, we're now entering a period, particularly with the costs of climate change and much else, in which the state is going to be asked to do more. And we're not going to be able to pay for it by saying, well, you know, we can drop the defence budget or we can drop this bit of that, the state's activity. Uh, there's not much more to go between a quarter, and you're up already up to two-thirds. Uh, so I think the next 60 years um, are going to be rather difficult for social policy. Uh, we'll look back on the Titmus period as uh, 
despite all, all the problems that arose, as the easy bit. And you're all now entering on the hard bit. Good luck to you. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Howard. And I've got the questions here, with John to answer at a later point. Um, but I'm now going to um, ask uh, Sonia to respond. Uh, Dr. Sonia Exley is an assistant professor in the Department of Social Policy. She joined the department um, in 2011. Her specialist area of research is education policy, and she's got a particular interest in marketization and privatization of education systems and implications for disadvantaged groups. She's also um, got a keen interest in the history of UK social policy and its um, predecessor social administration, and uh, not that long ago carried out a research project funded by the Titmus Meinhardt Memorial Fund exploring the subject's history at the LSE. And she's also had an article on the wider UK history of social, social policy administration. Um, she had that published uh, this year in the journal Social Policy Administration. So over to you, Sonia. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Okay, so thank you, John, first of all, for a really super interesting talk, and Howard, uh, for some really great insights as well. You are a pair of seriously hard acts to follow. Um, so I think, yeah, it's really interesting and very, really a depressing in indictment of society today to hear Titmus and his, his work from the 1950s being almost, you know, so relevant and almost more on point today than they ever have been before even if there are some moments in there where we might feel optimistic. Um, so my main um, work within the field of social policy to date has actually been in the field of education policy, as Anne said. Um, and so what I'm going to say is quite different to what uh, John and, and Howard have had to say so far. It's specifically education-focused, um, given Titmus was talking quite a bit about education. Uh, so following my own sort of readings and re-readings of the Irresponsible Society over the last few weeks, um, the, there are two questions really that I've, I've been pondering a lot. And one of those, the first is the question of why is it that rule by privately educated elites in society has persisted so much over time? Uh, and the other question is that even as far back as the 1950s, so Titmus was critiquing the way that formal education systems focused so extensively on training people for professional life, training them to fit in with labour markets, however far less so on producing critical and active citizens. Um, education for democracy, as Titmus called it, that would encourage people not just to look down, but to look directly upwards at the power structures in society and to scrutinize all this irresponsible power. So why is it that today we are, as John suggests, uh, seeing a world in which this focus in education on human capital investment above all else is, we can quite convincingly argue, I think, more pervasive than ever before. And in response to those questions, and I would like to hear John's thoughts on them as well, um, I've got two key points that I think I'd like to make. The first of those is that in the sociology of education, and I've got a bit of a history in the sociology of education, debate has for many decades now been really furious over how far so the issue of 
how far it is that formal education systems can be and are and ever have been actually intended to change society versus the idea that education systems, formal education systems, are really there more than anything else to reproduce existing power relations and social hierarchies. So reinforcing and entrenching social inequalities rather than challenging them. And when we think about what that means for education policy, the policy on education is very often made and controlled to a large degree by elite groups in society who themselves, I would argue, have very little political incentive to encourage curricula that would shine a light on and scrutinize that irresponsible power. Um, and I think that feeds into school curricula over time having perpetuated, um, and I think it will continue to perpetuate, uh, what many theorists of politics today are calling depoliticization. And I think um, that's, that seems like sort of a, a term that has come into fashion. But even all the way back in the 1950s, in the irresponsible society, Titmus was talking about what he called political atheism and professional neutralism, which I think is kind of tapping into the same thing. Uh, and related to this, Titmus did also make quite a nice point in his lecture, and, and, and John referenced it earlier, um, regarding elites, of course not always, but very often privately educated, um, elites making policies that tend to work in their own interests more than the interests of people at the bottom. Uh, Titmus said it's not necessarily that these people are setting out to make wicked policies. They're not trying to be evil in some way. Um, in an absence of context, the policies uh, that these groups are making on education and in many, many other areas, um, they typically are intended to be, and on the surface of it, um, they almost always read as what, what he described as rational, sober, uh, rational, sober and sensible decision-making. Um, but at the same time, a lack of representation a lack of participation in policy making among the most vulnerable groups. It can feed into insensitivity in policy making and a lack of appreciation of the day-to-day -day lived experiences of the people at the bottom. Uh, Titmus has got some very nice quotes on this. He, he, he described more affluent groups as being tranquilized politically by their own experiences of private and occupational welfare and he felt that that in turn leads to discriminatory policy. And I think that's true, just as true today as it was then. Um, my second key point relates to why it might be that we are seeing uh, this ever-increasing focus on human capital investment, uh, training workers for the labour market, informal education systems, um, in a way that is almost certainly squeezing um, more than ever before facets of what we might call education for democracy in our schools and our colleges and our universities. Uh, so John has mentioned this uh, sort of growing preoccupation in society today with, uh, with wage returns to different sorts of degrees, of course very differential wage returns that people have on different sorts of degrees. 
Um, but to that, I think we can add a growing belief that school-level education, even early years education these days, needs to focus above all else and quite single-mindedly these days on literacy and numeracy and the associated testing and assessments and uh, targets, performance indicators that are testing children across the world on basic skills, uh, systems for international comparison like the OECD's Programme for International Student Assessment, PISA, and the impact that that has in terms of squeezing and, 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 and disappearance at the same time from the curriculum um, of many sort of aspects and devotion to uh, creative and expressive subjects like art and music and drama. There is less and less room for these more expressive subjects. Um, and why might this be more intense than ever before? Um, so here, I guess I would argue that a lot relates to the changing nature of the labour market in post-industrial times. Um, a growing reliance in the economy on general, uh, general transferable skills um, among, among workers um, in, in, in the global knowledge economy. Um, and related to that, an ever-increasing emphasis placed on young people getting degrees, getting university degrees. Um, and in that context, school qualifications in core subjects, they become ever more important. And I think at the level of the individual, they also become much more important in a time when there is more competition in a polarised labour market, a dualised labour market than there has been before. Um, the best jobs today are very hard to come by. Competition for them is extreme. Um, and employers are expecting more and more from students and from graduates at the start of their academic careers, uh, the, the start of sorry, their, their professional careers than they ever have before. And I think all that leaves young people terrified, uh, and I think it leaves them and their teachers today with little and also shrinking uh, scope for uh, focusing on issues beyond employability in education. So in that context, I would say it seems highly probable that we will see decreased and decreasing space for critique in education that would scrutinise irresponsible power. Um, though it should be also noted that schools and universities, you know, uh, we're sat here tonight, they have always also been sites of struggle. Uh, there are always points in the system where educators are pushing back. Um, but maybe in this broader context, uh, we also have to think about the way that education for democracy is something we need to look outside of the formal education system for. Um, consciousness raising of our children about the injustices that exist in the world, ensuring that our children mix with a variety of other sorts of children who are different from themselves and who can provide different perspectives and different lived experiences. Uh, the, the American philosopher John Dewey called that our associational life. So we're thinking about education for democracy outside of formal systems. Though, of course, that does then raise the question of how, in an era of late capitalism, young people and their parents are ever going to find the time. So um, I think that's, that's I'll, I'll stop there. And maybe you can. Oh, sorry, sorry. Thank you. Hmm?
Thank you very much, Howard and Sonia. Um, just before I open up for questions, I don't know if you'd like to respond to a couple of the points that Howard and well, Sonia have made. I think only very quickly, because everybody will be patiently yeah. sitting here and um, may want to add um, or disagree. Um, two things from, from what Howard said. I, if Titmus as Hamlet's ghost was here, I think he would he would probably be disappointed that the result of the Pensions Commission was not to recommend a 1958-style, German-style, earnings-related state pension system, um, and that we were only recommending automatic enrolment into pri private-funded occupational pension schemes, adding to that um, 2.3 trillion um, of assets. Um, but that's, I think, the reason we reached that decision was because Titmus was right. That you can see the result of the 1959 election and therefore the non-implementation of Labour's super national superation and innovation plans, which would have left us like Germany, was the missed opportunity. By the time we attempted to have a state earnings-related pension system um, by the, the, the late 1970s, it was just too late. The idea, you know, the, the private occupational pension schemes were too deeply entrenched, and that idea that he, you know, with rather modest level of, of contracting out from the um, 1960 Conservative scheme, was transplanted into the state only financial pension scheme, which, which then meant that it had no real political oomph behind it. And it certainly didn't have the oomph behind it to, for anybody to, to say that higher taxes needed to be paid to pay for it. And so its cost was paid by shrinking the value of the basic state pension. And then what the Pensions Commission did was to suggest that we, we reversed that and we went back to a beverage-style pension, but with this additional element on top. I, I think I would defend what we proposed a little bit against what I think Timus would have said, that at least we proposed that there should be the National Employment Savings Trust as a collective lifetime body with public interest rather than the, the assumption would be made that you'll be into one of the, the private schemes. So, but it was definitely kind of fighting a bit of a rearguard action against a battle that was lost in October 1959, probably, um, and had been lost the month before Timus was speaking. Um, and clearly, um, it, it was a great shame that um, George Osmond decided to take a unilateral, um, non-consensual decision on what should happen, having built this painful consensus as to how we should build up our pension rights, that then it should all be, you should have the right to blow it on Maserati, having been tax-subsidised on the way up, seems to me to be rather regrettable. Um, and on, on universal credit, I think, I mean, I think the, anybody who followed um, Philip Alston's visit to the UK last year, the UN Special Rapporteur, uh, and, and read his first report, his interim report, which so upset um, whoever was at that moment, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, um, um, there's a very interesting section in the middle of it which does not recur in his final report because I think it's going to occur elsewhere he's doing a different report which is on rule by algorithms so a lot of the battle but you'll remember this much better than, than I know um, of was by uh, David Donison and, and Tippett's successors was around greater transparency in how decisions were being made about what people were, were received, how, where that seven shillings and eleven came from. Um, whereas now, 
we have these decisions being made by algorithm using big data in an incredibly untransparent way as to who is going to be singled out for sanctions in a way that probably the people administering it do not know what the underlying rules are that, that have been thrown up by the machine following previous use of, of discretion. And I think that's a... Um, I, I think we are going to hear more about that in, in, in another thing from um, Philip Olson. Um, and as far as, um, I don't think I could disagree with it, any of the other things that either of you said, um, and I think I, so I've missed the tranquilised by the experience of, like of private welfare <laughs> yes. as being one of the things that affects people who've gone through, and obviously many people have written a lot, particularly the Social Mobility Commission as it, as it was, um, about the hugely disproportionate level of people with private education at the top of most of our professions and disproportionately within, within the political class. Okay, thank you very much. And now, a short question and answer session. So I'll take three or four questions and then panel can answer. So, okay. Here, here, and here. Thank you for an excellent uh, presentation. Oh, could you give um, your name, please? Uh, Paul McGrill, uh, Peace News. Uh, from my rather cursory um, reading of, of post-war British economy, it struck, it's, it's always struck me that somehow the, the financial ability to, to support uh, services was always found. I mean, uh, in the 60s and the... 50s and 60s, you had um, overseas markets, you had to work, uh, the empire was still in existence, and the, there was a, a large workforce paying tax, taxes. Then you, and then you were into um, the North Sea oil revenues, that, which supported the, the British economy. And then when that de started to decline, we had this, the great sell-offs. It's amazing, just compared to the rest of Europe, that everything seems to have been privatized here. And I'm just, it's a general question, macro question, but going forward, particularly in respect of pensions and, and health care for the, uh, the, uh, the aging population, people retiring 65, living to 80 and 85, all that cost. Even the Conservative Party, as of today, don't really expect uh, to, to do without a great deal of borrowing and uh, deficit uh, budgets. So can, is there any room for a, a, a sanguine or an even optimistic outlook going forward in terms of the British, uh, British ability to pay for these services? Thank you very much indeed. So is there room uh, for a sanguine outlook? Next question here. Paul Hudson, uh, most of my um, working life has been in academia in Australia, Britain and Germany. Um, I'm glad to be receiving a, a public pension according to a WITCH report three or four years ago. Commercially uh, operated pension funds take about 25 to 40 percent, in fact, of the pension pots. I think that's something worth bearing in mind. I just wanted to make a comment before I pose my main question. I think there's a misperception of um, Professor Titmus about the power of the banks in the 1950s. I started my working life in banks in the mid-1950s. They didn't have much power because, in fact, there was rationing and the government was periodically issuing instructions to the banks as to where 
they should be lending, i.e. in manufacturing or agriculture or in exports. They didn't have very, very much power. The question I wanted to ask, um, I'm 81 now, and I'm part of a generation that is part of, a major part, I think, of our irresponsible society. I belong to a cohort is probably making greater demands on the health and social services. Fortunately, touch wood. I've enjoyed good health and hope I shall carry on receiving it. But I can't understand why, particularly with, when we've had supposedly Labour governments, I don't regard Blair's government as a Labour government, by the way, they have not made any contributions towards what we call national insurance contribution. I know it's not a hypothecated tax, but I don't understand why, in fact, there's no uh, demand for pensioners to make some contribution to that, given that they make the greatest demands. And as far as I'm aware, the policy ad advisors don't seem to have cottoned onto that. I can only assume the policies are just appealing to the selfishness of the grey vote and don't want to raise it. Thank you. And there's another question to the back. Other questions? Chris David, uh, my question is, what would Titmus have made of the political class today? Our first questioner touched on their sort of preoccupation with the sort of financialization of everything. And if you look at the way the parties currently fight this election, they don't talk about policies or social policy or anything. They talk about how much they're going to spend spend on the NHS or how much they're going to spend on, on some aspect. Um, and this is in the context also that I would have thought we had a much higher level of advocacy from uh, organisations like one I'm affiliated with, Citizens Advice, but many, many charities who are making the point that I think, John, you've been making on, on many of these things but our political class seems to be deaf. What would Titmus made of that? Okay, three questions to start. Should I start with, yeah. uh, combine the first two, I think, in a way, um, which is that I, I think you were very much agreeing with the story Howard had told about how we did manage to take spending on the broadly defined welfare state from a quarter of public spending to, to two-thirds two of it. And we were able to do that through squeezing um, a whole series of things, including particularly defence spending, which in the 1950s was a very considerable percentage of national income. And now we're down to around 2% of national income and then a whole series of other things where, in effect, we've had pieces of luck, including the relatively small size of the older population as a big cohort went through, um, which meant that we were able to, without too much pain, um, improve the level of provision in relation to demographic need. And we've kind of run out of road for doing that without as I said, levelling with people that you have to pay for it. And so to go back to terms of where does this come from, it seems to me that most obviously, if you look at some of the numbers I was talking about, the, and you combine them with the very low rates of tax on capital 
and investment income of different forms, including incomes from pensions. Um, the obvious untaxed or lowly taxed part of the British economy, uh, the, the wealth and investment income of the more affluent half of the baby boomer, the older population. And I'm sure you know, there are a series of things which, which people have talked about, but which I don't think we're going to hear a lot of in the next four weeks. Um, that base, particularly after what happened in the, 19, in, the, in the 2017 election, that one obvious solution to funding social care is to somehow extend some level of national insurance contributions to apply to occupational pensions. Um, because then you're, you're, you're raising money from people with an ability to pay who are the people who are most acutely aware of the need for that spending, but doing it on a basis where you're pooling the risk rather than individual families being left with the one in ten of them having catastrophic costs of over £100,000 or having to reduce their assets to the level where they can get cover. Um, so I'll put those two together. Um, as to what tips would make of the political class today... Yeah, I, I would quite like to sort of say something about what you said about the role of charities and the, the, the deafness of the political class to many... Uh, to, to many messages coming from charities like Citizens Advice at the moment. I think it depends on how optimistic you are about the idea that we live in a pluralist society where you know, um, charities are able to make a difference uh, to, to policy outcomes. I think some charities have influence. I think it depends what they're saying, though, and the extent to which they agree with the political class. Um, but then I'm very cynical. Um, and I think Titmus would probably be quite horrified by the fact that actually you know, I, I think that the power has become more concentrated and that critical messages are less received than ever before. But, um, I'm very cynical. So. Slightly more positive note. I mean, I, um, I do think there's beginning to be a emerging consensus or at least an overlap about the way we might finance long-term care. Um, if you look at Resolution Foundation... If you look at the report of the um, House of Commons uh, Health and Local Government Committee just before Christmas, the notion that we should beginning, beginning to have a, a hypothetical tax through the social, the, the social security system, which people beyond the age of pensioners would pay, which they don't at the moment, um, it, it's kind of entirely illogical that rich pensioners should not pay social security contributions um, and if you were to make it clear that that was for health and long-term care and then you only use that additional fund of money um, to finance joined up health and social care systems um, I think you could begin to get somewhere and there is a kind of emerging you know people the, even the um, social um, um, what's it, foundation? Social Market. Social, Social Market Foundation have come to, at least edging into this kind of territory. So I think you could begin to put together some kind of uh, consensus building set of proposals there. Um, so I'm not, not all is lost yet, um, despite my pessimism at the beginning. I think there is a way forward on this. Thank you. Any other questions? And then leave to uh, 
Uh, thanks very much for a really, really interesting lecture. Um, my name is Jeremy Moore, and uh, until I retired, uh, my last job was Director General for Policy at the Department of Work and Pensions. Um, boo hiss. Um, I would be interested, therefore, John, in your views about policy making uh, and the implications of policy of some of the things you said. Uh, because it strikes me that over the last few years, governments have done big things which have been both difficult. If you think about student loans, if you think about congestion charging, if you think about raising pension, state pension age, as well as doing big things which have been generous, so the triple lock, um, shed loads more money going into extra cost disability payments, tax credits, etc. So governments clearly are capable of doing, making big decisions, both, both difficult uh, and, and it's easier. Um, and if I pick up the three things it seemed to me on the social policy side that you were most concerned about, so effectively dysfunctional housing market and housing policy, meanness to the non-working poor, um, and uh, what we do about social care because of ageing, what are the lessons for policymakers in those areas, drawing, if you like, on, on some of the things we've seen which have been successful over the last few years? Thank you very much. There's a question here. Martin Lignon, member of an alliance called Is it a crime to be poor? I wonder whether the panel would consider it a mark of an irresponsible society that some people are imprisoned for non-payment of the council tax and others for non-payment of the TV license mm -hmm. and also that the government department, namely the DWP, recognizes such, acknowledges such a practice as survival sex. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And David. David and then, yes. David first and then the person pink jumper. Me? Um, David Pearshow. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether um, Titmus was responsible or irresponsible in that uh, he appointed me um, <laughs> in 1970. Um, uh, there's, there's been a lot of questions about if Titmus um, came here like a ghost. Um, to some extent, Titmus was rather like a ghost. <laughs> he sort of wafted around and, uh, um, uh, uh, and had uh, um, many, many insights and was in many ways inspiring. But, uh, 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 but nobody, uh, I think, would describe him as a very sort of cheerful fellow. <laughs> Um, that, 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 that the tenor of the lecture, which I would summarise that society is still extremely irresponsible, is one that, that John argued very forcefully and I wouldn't dispute in any work, way whatsoever. But uh, I wonder if uh, perhaps one, one could be slightly more optimistic in a in, in number of respects. And it, it's always seemed to me that social policy analysts follow the uh, model of Jeremiah and um, 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 I'm not, uh, I'm, well I suppose I'm arguing or suggesting that we might look as well on the bright side of life. And let's take um, a, a few examples. Just in relation to climate, um, I think Howard said there wasn't a climate problem, which is absolutely true, but on the other hand we were burning coal in vast quantities and half a million people were digging it out. Uh, and when I was taught economics, um, they said you can measure how um, wealthy a society is by how much um, coal it burns uh, and oil. 
Um, so so uh, there was absolutely no recognition uh, of what was a growing uh, problem, and we can see that growth uh, looking back and the, the, the increase in uh, global temperatures. Um, uh, so, so, so the awareness of that um, is, is new, and, and I'm not uh, holding Titmus in any way responsible for having uh, ignored that, but um, he did contribute quite a lot of smoke, and um, uh, the, the awareness that uh, improving the environment uh, uh, or the, 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 the environment affected health was something that was, was, was just not taken on board. Um, so that in, one, in that respect, we, one could say that society is actually a lot more responsible in relation to climate. Uh, second example is about the role of women, that, that, that it was taken for granted that women would take uh, a whole lot of private responsibilities for the care of children, the elderly, disabled people in society, um, that that, that uh, responsibility still largely falls on women, but, it, but there's a bit more concern about sharing that responsibility, and that, uh, mm -hmm. that might, might be a, a sign of slightly more responsible society. Um, the, uh, the tip was, was mentioned was on the uh, uh, deputy chairman of the um, Supplementary Benefit Commission, uh, but his really uh, attitude towards um, discretion was one that uh, uh, in the early 70s was highly disputed, uh, uh, very controversial um, in, in his last years at LSE because a lot of people studying social policy had worked with um, benefit claimants and, and, and took the view that, that, that this discretion was very elitist and, 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 and in some ways quite oppressive. So that uh, when David Donison opened that up a lot in the Supplementary Benefits Commission, um, um, David Donison happily didn't talk about algorithms at all, but he wanted, he wanted uh, clear-cut policies. Um, and, and the fact that those policies now are in many respects uh, inhuman and uh, oppressive is, 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 is a separate issue to some extent from the question of whether uh, one should rely on discretion. So, so all I'm suggesting is that uh, one can so make a case that there's been quite a lot of uh, um, uh, progress okay. and uh, whether, whether, whether perhaps uh, it, okay. it was slightly uh, pessimistic presentation. Okay. That's the question. Okay, thank you very much, David. And one very last question, because I did promise you last question. Yes, thank yes. you. Uh, my name is Celia Kersanetsky. I'm a professor from Brazil. Uh, my question is more conceptual. I, uh, I was wondering about the inadvertent contribution of the welfare state to inequality, which is a point that uh, seems that interested a lot Titmus. And I, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on his concept of social growth, which I think gro social growth. You don't remember that? <laughs> Any of you? <laughs> I'm sorry, I think there was in this lecture of his. The idea that growth should benefit more those in the bottom than those, uh, those better off. And uh, that's a concept that I have some difficulty to working it out in terms of which policies, uh, a combination of universalism and targeting, something like that. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. A very quick 
response to any of those questions, John, Howard, and Sonia? Oh, I would like to come back to David and just say that I'm, I agree that I'm definitely happier to be a woman today than in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah. um, there was a question about how do we make policy and how could we make it better? Was it made better in the Titmus years? I think in some ways, yes. I mean, there's the... the um, we've commissions of inquiry, of which the Turner Committee was an outstanding example, went by the board uh, for much of this period after Mrs Thatcher, who, who dumped them. Blair also thought that they were a bit of a waste of time. You know, he could get on and do it better himself, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, I think that's a, a, a tool we have um, used too little. Mm -hmm. um, well, first of all, can I echo the comment about um, the shame of um, people in prison for non-payment of council tax and TV licences? One of the things I, I didn't have in my list, which could have been a lot longer, of holes in the safety net, was we used to take it for granted that um, if you had no income, um, your rates, as it used to be, or your council tax would be, would be paid in full. Um, and now, with the cuts, rather invisible cuts, when it was transferred to local authorities in, 19, um, in, in 2010, um, only 80% for working age people um, is, is often covered, even if you have zero, zero income. So you've got that automatic deduction apart from some local authorities. They've got some other resources to do that. And I think that's just another example of these, um, of, of these, these holes we've got. Um, yeah, I think we should spend a long time thinking about the, the examples of policy success to put against the, the kind of great failures, and I was cycling home yesterday thinking about the, the fact that congestion charge works on day one, as an example, and the fact that, that we the people did accept the original idea of, of a rising state pension age, except that it got muddled up with the subsequent decision to accelerate the rise, which was already happening in women's state pension age, and so you get women born in 1955 receiving their pension 10 years later than women, actually 11 years later than people, women born in 1950, for instance, which is just pushing the system too far by not thinking it through. When we put forward the proposal on the Pensions Commission, there were quid pro quos. It was, Adair put it as being a, a more generous pension at a later age. You were able to balance the two things against another rather than, than that being used just as, as a cut. But you know, I'm sure you're right that there are some good lessons and there are some things that where more consultation more thought through of how to run universal credit um, might have produced a system that was not affected by some of the decisions that were made from a mindset that thought it was normal to be paid monthly at the end of the month and that the system should be geared around people who were in that world. Um, and that the, the administrative simplicity of, of running it in that way would trump um, some of the others. And, and I think you know, there are ways around some of those problems with the way it's administered um, that, that could, have been, could have been worked through in advance, perhaps. But, I mean, you were obviously you know, in, in, around at, at the time, so I think we can talk over a drink afterwards about, okay. about that. Um, so I'm glad David ended up with some, some notes of optimism. I should absolutely have listed as well as my 10 years extra life expectancy compared with 1959. Um, the, um, the change in the role of, of women is clearly very different from the era Timus was writing in.
Okay, well, thank you very much to our speakers and thank you very much for coming along. Uh, to find out more about our research in the Department of Social Policy, just go to our website. Uh, there's lots of interesting material there. John has mentioned some, uh, some work by Mike Murphy on ageing, John's own work, there's work by Sonia as well. Uh, there's a lot of work there. Um, there is now a reception. It's open to everybody who's here. It's in the Garrick, which is very, very nearby. So you just go out here. You turn right along the Oldwich, um, and it's on the corner of Houghton Street. So everybody's welcome. Do go along and have a drink. So thank you very much for coming. Good